Um, it's good to be with you this morning and um, honored to, to have this moment to open up God's Word with you, uh, which is always true, through which God is always working to accomplish His, His redemption in our lives, and um, I completely trust He'll do that this morning. I'm going to invite you to open up to Psalm 34, and um, we're going to look at the first three verses together. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if it's the practice here or not, so forgive me if it's not, but um, if you're able, would you stand together as we read God's Word? <clears throat> I'm going to read also the, the introduction in the psalm, which if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible would be verse 1, and um, is important context for us. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out. And he went away. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. That's God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you. Uh, for your word. We do magnify your name in all the earth. We lift you up. We lift Jesus up this morning, knowing that as he is lifted up, he will draw men to himself. Even now, we pray in Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, Psalm 34, a, 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 a psalm that contains within it verses that are, I think, very familiar to some of us. Um, Psalm 34, 18 is a, is a verse that has been on my mouth. I can't count the number of times, both in consoling my own uh, self in sorrow and also consoling others who are in the midst of deep grief. You may know the promise that the Lord is near to who? To the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. And the, the, the last verse in this psalm, that the Lord redeems the life of his servants, that none of those who take refuge in him, none of those, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What an absolute glorious promise. <clears throat> this morning we begin at verse 1 and look at the first three verses and consider a part of the psalm that for me has been utterly transformational. I was listening to a colleague read this text about three and a half years ago, and it was just one of those moments where you encounter a part of Scripture as though you're seeing it for the first time, and you realize this is exactly what I needed, that this was a turn for me in my heart, in my life, where God would point me towards Him in a way that would have lasting effect and change. The psalmist is David, and he is writing in a moment of great difficulty. I've titled the sermon, A Leading Worship from the Cave of Despair. More on that in just a minute. Before that, though, I want to invite you to take a brief survey of your own thoughts. What do you think about most of the time in a given day? What's consuming your thinking, even this morning as you're driving over to this gathering of worship? And the question is not meant to condemn you, just to, to offer a, a moment of reflection. Is it things that you need to solve? Are you thinking about people who have wronged you? Are you thinking about uh, people that you don't like? Are you consumed with thoughts about your health, your vocation, 
your house, your car? Is, is HGTV like on rerun all day long in your house? Because all you can think about is how you want your house to be better. I think a lot about politics, global happenings, wars, rumors of wars, celebrities, the economy, some material possession for which you long. What do the eyes of your mind see most often throughout the day? How easy is it for you to draw a connection now if you take a moment of further reflection between those things that are most often on your mind, most often in the foreground of your thoughts, and the things that you fear, things about which you're anxious or which you you find yourself triggered to anger? Psalm 34 is written by David. It's written on the occasion, as we saw, of his escape from King Achish, when he had humbled himself. He had been identified by those in King Achish's midst. This is David, who's killed tens of thousands of people. And immediately he started to drool himself and slobber all over himself and pretend to be going mad that he might escape this moment. And he did, and he fled. He fled to a cave. David is the one who's anointed to be king of Israel, and he flees to a cave. And if you read in 1 Samuel about this account, you'll see that he is not there alone. He, he has gone down there. 1 Samuel 22 says that he escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. I mean, like, if you could just choose your army, right? That's who you want. It says there were with him about 400 men. And David is leading worship among his family members and what Dale Ralph Davis calls a kaleidoscope of broke, broken, and bitter men. And he's with people whose problems are so severe that they've been driven to a cave in search of someone who might help. And David has his own problems. You read in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 22, the very next verse, that David gets together with the king of Moab in hopes that his parents might, might find safety with the king of Moab while David waits to see what the Lord will do. David has no plan. He doesn't know what God's going to do. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out for him. He's certainly got lots on his mind. And to these broke, broken and bitter men, and to himself and to us, David leads us in worship. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Oh, let the humble be glad and hear. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What is it to to magnify the Lord? I think most of us, if we were stopped by someone with a camera and a microphone and a postcard on the street corner and asked that question, we would say, well, it it means to lift up the Lord. It, it, it means we want to make him visible to others. And it's true, but you can think about it a little bit more deeply and see further connections. How many of you have used a microscope? I don't know if 
science class, they still use microscopes. But I can't remember in school, I, I was so excited when I would walk into class and see the microscope out and those little glass, uh, what do you call them, slides, I guess, that, that had different objects in there that were too tiny to look at with the naked eye. And you would get them up under the microscope and you would use a microscope to make what is small appear large, right? And so you could see the cellular structure of an onion peel. It's like, it was so cool. I just loved it. I would skip recess to look at things through the microscope. When we use a microscope to magnify something, right, we, we, make, we make a mountain out of a, out of a molehill, something that is small we make to appear larger. With our health, we feel a twitch, and we immediately assume something worse. When I have any kind of pain in my leg, as someone who's had five pulmonary embolisms in the last six years, there's a pain in my leg, and it's like, oh, here we go again. And, and the mind is invited to just be completely consumed with like, okay, what's happening now? Where is the pain now? What does it feel like? When our boss says he needs to discuss some aspect of our performance, we, we just assume, we magnify the situation and what could, out, what could be of that. We, we, we magnify his invitation to come and speak to us about our job for a minute. Like we just magnify it to like homelessness and bankruptcy. <laughs> in a matter of seconds. You know, shame, going home to our spouse or our, our roommates and saying, I, I, I didn't make the cut. We take something that's small and we make it appear to be larger than it is, but the, the psalmist is calling on us to magnify the Lord. And so is he asking us that we would take the small God that we serve and make him appear to be bigger than he is so that we can feel better about our situation. Your laughter gives me great comfort because you know that's not so. God doesn't need magnifying as though he's small and we need to make him big. At 1 Samuel 5, another uh, passage in this same uh, Old Testament book recounts the story of the Philistines, right, who captured the ark of God, and they, they put it in the temple with their god statue, Dagon, and continually they wake up the next day and Dagon's face down before the ark. And they prop him back up. They go in the next day, and this time Dagon's on the ground again, but head, arm, de de totally decapitated before the ark of God. And, and, and it's like they've got to prop him back up again. We don't have a God who needs to be propped up. T to magnify the Lord is not to prop him up. Rather, it is to see him as he is and to help others see him as he really is. It's more like the work of a telescope. When we look through a telescope, we, we, we look through to see what appears to be small in order that we might see it more accurately as it really is. Jupiter is gigantic, but in the sky, it's like a little pinhole poked through a construction paper with a light behind it. He's like, ah, oh, I think that's Jupiter. I mean, if, to the untrained eye, Jupiter looks the same as Mars, as Venus, as Saturn, as the North Star, as... They all look the same. You get it under a telescope, you look through that lens, and you can see more accurately what is really large. 
We live many moments in life as though God were of no factor, no significance. We worry about what we'll eat. We worry about what we'll wear. In today's housing market, if you're not a homeowner, you worry about where you'll live. And we do so as though God has no steadfast concern for his children. Not only is God small, but he doesn't care. And David is saying in this psalm that in every single moment, we should make our boast in the Lord and thereby magnify the Lord. We should make our boast in the Lord and thereby allow others and our own heart to see God as he really is, as the mighty one, as the magnificent one. This act of boasting in the Lord is is really another way of recounting his attributes, his covenant promises. In this same psalm, he says in verse 6 and 7, right? He's the God who, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He's the delivering God, right? So as David says, let us magnify the Lord together. He looks at those bitter, broken, and broke people around him and says, God is mighty. He's the delivering God. In verse 10, he's the, he, that those who seek God lack no good thing. In verse 15, that the Lord sees the righteous and hears their cry. He's not a distant God. He's not an unconcerned God. He's very near. And then he says in verse 18 that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see, we're... We were made to worship. We were made to magnify. And and we are always magnifying something. We're always magnifying something. In the same way that we're always worshiping something, it's two sides of the same coin. In the same way that we're always trusting something. I love sports. It's nothing for me to magnify the performance of some athlete that just did something that's never been done before. (laughs) Psalm 104. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I I just want you to hear a couple of words. The psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul. O my Lord God, O Lord my God, you are very great. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. Think about that. He wears splendor and majesty. He he is the the source of all glory. He he covers himself with light, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Uh, You read further on about the way in which he manages over all of his creation. He causes the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate that they might bring forth food to the earth, wine to gladden the heart. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to rise and steal away and lie down in their dens when speaking about the young lions. The sea, great and wide, teeming with creatures innumerable. The glory of the Lord endures forever. Psalm 104, this boasting about the Lord, this this magnifying that God made everything that's visible and invisible. 
There's nothing that is that he didn't made. There's nothing that is sustained that he does not sustain by the word of his power. And, and, and listen, there should be no end to our boasting about this. I, I think about experiences I had as a father when my children were young and they would, they would come to me and they would say, like, Dad, in, in Sunday school or in children's church today, we talked about how Jesus healed a guy with leprosy. Yeah. And, and, and as a parent, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, that's Luke, whatever. Like, I, I already have that categorized, followed away in my brain. I know all about that. Instead of like, what? Are you serious? Like, really? Jesus healed a man with leprosy? Jesus really made a lame man to walk? Dad, the sun came in over the east horizon this morning. Amazing! I mean, it really, really is. We, we are able to become so just muted to the glory of God that is all around us. That's why the, the author of Romans, Paul, says that although things about God should be obvious to us, we need to thank God or give Him glory. The, the, the boasting that, that is on tap for us concerning our God, He has not done these things in a vacuum. We, he's not like the Wizard of Oz. We don't even know if He really exists. We don't know if He's tall or short. We don't know if He has a high voice, a low voice. We don't know if He can really do anything, if He really owns any of this stuff. We don't, we don't. No, He's shown us everything in space and time. He has revealed to us the full measure of His glory and His power. And in Christ Jesus, He has shown us that the full measure of His glory and His power is here for us, those who come to Him in faith, those who seek refuge in Him. Absolutely breathtaking. Now, I have loads of examples I'm not going to go into as deeply as I want to this morning, but let me just, like a skipping a rock across the water, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Told by Nebuchadnezzar, to bow down before this thing when they hear the noise. And they won't. And ultimately they say, listen, we have no need to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar, in this matter. If it be so that you're going to throw us into the fire, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That This is a moment, right, where these guys, sh- I'd like want to talk to Phil Vischer and say, why did you screw it up for me? I want to say Rakshak and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys had a chance to, in this moment to, to see, oh, the fire has been turned up seven times its normal temperature. Like, do you see the fire? I see the fire, but look at the fire. There's people dying just getting close to the fire, right, to magnify the fire. And instead, they magnify the God who made the fire. They magnify the God who made Nebuchadnezzar. They magnify the God who made promises to them. See the difference? Something radical happens in their worship, in their faith, because it's all tied together. King Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles, a king had been doing reform in Israel, and then suddenly he hears that there's a great horde coming against them. It's one of those moments where you're like, gosh, I've been doing everything right. I've been serving God in every way I know to serve God, and now this. When confusion can come and you wonder, how is this sort of thing happening? 
and he stands in front of the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem with the parents and their little children, and he prays, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. He knows we could get crushed by this group that's coming against us. He says, but God, you can't be crushed. You're over them. No one has power in their pinky that you didn't give to them. And then he says, uh, he cries out, right? He says, we're powerless against this great horde. We, we, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Here's a king who, who before the people, like David, has no answer. He does not know what God will do, but he, he boasts in the Lord. He invites the humble to hear and be glad because there is a magnificent one who has sided himself with his people by his mercy and his grace. This 12 spies of Numbers 13 and 14, they go out to see the land. Joshua and Caleb come back, and they're like, yep, it's just as God told us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. We should go. And the other 10 are like, hold it right there. These guys are only giving you part of the story. You know, they're like, fake news. There's these giants in the land. We're like, grasshoppers before them. And what have they done, right? They've taken the Canaanites and they've put them under a microscope and they're like, look at how big they are. They're huge. And look at how small we are. And in the same verse, in the same breath, rather, think about how small our God is. How big would we have to make our God seem in our eyes if we would have any chance against these people? But Joshua and Caleb were like, they, they know. They know the God of Israel. They know that which he has done to protect them. They know that he intends only to do good to them. And God says, Numbers 14, to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? In spite of all the reasons that they have to boast why will they not magnify? It's interesting, too, just by the way, in case you haven't noticed this before, in Joshua 2, 8 and 11, um, when, when the two spies have been sent out to go and they are kept safe by Rahab, as they are scoping out one of the cities, she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and, and what you did to two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Like, this people for 40 years have been living in trembling fear because they can see God as he truly is. And the very God that people walked out of Egypt through many signs and many wonders, who is sustained in the wilderness, they're not magnifying God. They see God as small. They see God as tiny Peter on the water in the New Testament. Jesus, if it's really you, ask me to come out and walk. Come. 
and he gets out and takes a few steps, and then he sees the wind, and he becomes afraid. He begins to sink. He, he magnifies this wind. He knows what happens to waves. Jesus reaches out to take hold of him. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So, I, you know, think about how this looks in our own lives. You make mental notes about your week. In fact, I would invite you to do this. I'd invite you to sit down at the end of every day for several days and consider moments when by God's grace and God's spirit you magnified the Lord and, and moments when you can see in the weakness of the flesh when you magnified something else, someone else, some other problem, some other hurt, some sin in your own life, some sin in someone else's life. I mean, I, I've been there myself, and I'm, I think about people who are grieving over their own sin in different moments, and they just, you know, you're, you're, you're explaining, you're sharing, like we have a God who in Christ Jesus became our substitute for sin. Like Jesus took on human flesh and the death that we deserve because of sin, he, he took upon himself. Voluntarily, he gave himself up that the wrath of God poured out for sin would come upon him on behalf of those who put their faith in him. In this way, God is both the just and the justifier. He doesn't leave sin unpunished, but he's able to make you and me as declared righteous because Jesus took the penalty that we deserve, right? And so we, we speak this gospel in, in the plainest of terms that we can to our own hearts and the hearts of someone next to us. And they say, yeah, but you don't realize, like, but it was my son. I yelled at my son. I had made a vow to this man. I had made a vow to this woman. But I stole for five years, Right? I want to say, yeah, you're, you're making your sin this big, and you're making the cross this big. The cross is what needs to be magnified. Magnify the Lord. Magnify the full scope of his redemption, that he indeed accomplished all that was necessary for you and me to be forgiven. We lived in Waco, Texas for a while, and... Um, when we were there, it was the height of the popularity of Fixer Upper. We couldn't, we, we had a house that we were uh, prepared to move into and uh, with a purchase. And literally the day of closing, the seller came and said, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell the house. So then we were like, oh, great. We have nowhere to go. And, and in God's mercy, the very next day, we were able to get into another house. I had a friend that wanted to renovate a house. He closed on it. We moved in. And we moved in in the middle of winter, which in, in that part of Texas, it can get cold. It can get icy cold. And this house needed to be gutted. And, and the floors had to be stripped. And we were, we were at one point, we are sleeping in one room, three of us, my wife and I and our youngest son, and then in the next room, our oldest son and our daughter. And the whole rest of the house looks like this. Well, I'm not 
I'm not talking about the church. <laughs> what I mean is like there's no drywall. There's just trusses and the, and the underside of roof sheathing. And my wife would get up in the morning and she would go to make breakfast for the kids for school and, and she'd open up their lunchbox and, and like a little piece of insulation, you know, would just come on down and land on the, right on the turkey sandwich. And at night you're shivering cold because there's no way to make the house get hot because everything is open. There's like a broken window. There's holes in the floor that go right, you know, into the outside. And in that in that experience, in that season, I mean, we magnified everything but God. We magnified the people whose fault it was that we found ourselves in this predicament, the people whose fault it was that we couldn't make a better situation out of it. And for years, we magnified those people. (laughs) I mean, for years. How was Waco, Texas? Oh, don't get me started. I don't know, you may have some experiences like that. You're not just magnifying something other than God in the day, but you're doing the same thing for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's almost become reflexive like it had become for me. And in that moment, had I taken hold of the grace that was was right there before me, right? I would have just been able to magnify God. Magnify Him as the one who makes the wind. Magnify Him as the one who made sheep that have wool that can become blankets. Magnify him as the one who can bring subcontractors more quickly to get work done. Magnify him as the one who never leaves and never forsakes his people. David's situation, he's not, he's not like, oh, it's not really a problem, right? Like, it's no big deal. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. But he's saying that bigger than this, as big as it is, is the one who we should be magnifying, the one in whom we should be boasting. When your children waver, if you're a parent and you have children who waver and they say something and you're like, that is not a faith. And they even say something like, I'm just sick of the church. Sick of your, I'm sick of our church friends. I'm sick of, like whatever might come out of your child's mouth. In that moment, you can magnify all sorts of things. You can magnify the misery that you feel as a parent. You can magnify the failure that you feel as a parent. You can magnify the despair that you feel for your child. Or you can remember that when my child was being knit together in the womb of his mom or her mom, she needed a savior. When that child came into this world in the delivery room, he needed a savior. When he was on his way to kindergarten, the first day of class, he needed a savior. Jesus always was, always will be the only one who can save your children. The only one who can save my children. Therefore, he is the only one in whom we should make our boasting. He's the only one in whom we should magnify. And beloved, that is so, it's so freeing. It actually puts you in a position to be most helpful to your child when you can say, I'm not going to be your savior. (laughs) Jesus is. We can serve in faith and hope and have peace. You know, you think about a little, chill, a little child that's walking um, with his dad. Like, to, I, I actually saw a, an ex, this exact scene play out at a park. Two-year-old with dad, maybe three, and um, they're pretending to be walking over a moonscape. 
And so they're in a desert landscape area, and there's rocks, but there's not really any big rocks. It's like all three-eighths minus rock, right? So it's this kind of stuff that's so small it can get stuck in your shoe. Super annoying rock. And they're walking along, and they're going real slow, and it's like, what do you see? Oh, I see a, some kind of mythical creature over here, and I see, you know, whatever. And then, and then this little boy, he grabs his dad's leg, and he's like, Dad, look out! His dad's like dragging him in his leg at this point, and he's like, what? He goes, look at that stone! And I mean, it's like, it's this big, right? It's this big. Now, let me tell you something. I, I personally, I looked at that rock, and I looked at that man, and I was like, come on, dude, be a man. You walk over those kind of rocks all the time. You crush rocks like they're nothing. Like you just stroll over three-inch rocks. And, and the, little, the little one, he's like, he's like, Dad, you got to watch out for that stone. He can't even pick it up. It's so big to him. And that moment will stick with me for the rest of my life, I'm sure. Because that is exactly me in every moment when I refuse to magnify the Lord and I instead choose to magnify something else. God is bigger than you fill in the blank. God is more powerful than. God is more mighty than. God is more faithful than. And he is the God who has raised you up with Christ Jesus into heavenly places. Like you don't even live in the land of little rocks anymore. You are seated with Christ in heavenly. Think about that. You and I magnify him in the spirit in heavenly places, worshiping him, resting in him, abiding in him. Jesus is the one who said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. God is the one who we know is working together all things for the good of those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. You can sit in the room with the wind piercing and the insulation falling, and you can say, Lord, I don't know what you'll do. And you can look at your wife if you're married. You can look at your husband. You can look at your kids. And you can say, let us magnify the Lord. There is no salvation in magnifying your problems. There is no peace in magnifying your problems. There is no satisfaction in magnifying your problems. You were made to magnify. You and I were made to magnify the one who is overall, in all, for whom all things exist for the purpose of his glory and the one who's redeemed you and me. Oh, I hope that in the future, as you get together, maybe, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit bitter that Gray didn't go when it was taco night. <laughs> Just read that, I'm like, oh, it sounds so great. <laughs> but when you come together for taco night and service, or you get together for a small group gathering, you know, and one of you comes to the other and just starts to magnify something other than God. How, how, how great would it be? How great would it be to say, like, oh, man, that sounds rough, or I'm sorry you experienced that, or is there any way I can help? And then to say, you know what, let's magnify the Lord together. Let's boast in the Lord together. How can we boast in the Lord together right now, given all that we know about God, all that we've seen him do? This is the way in which you can love each other. This is the way in which you can truly help one another. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord. Friends, 
Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let me pray for us.